All right, page 12 is where we are. Um, I don't know if we have any extra notes, because I never know. I, I, that's a problem. I need to start like keeping extra notes. But uh, page 12 is where we are, and we're finishing up talking about <clears throat> the image of God in man. We're in the section now where we're talking about uh, anthropology, which is the study of mankind. This particular lesson has been on the image of God. And uh, the next lesson we will start today is going to be on page 13, where we talk about sin entering the world, okay? Well, just to uh, refresh you where we were last week, there is, this is a quote from John Frame, there is no particular period in time when the body exists without a soul, nor any point in time when a soul is added to a soulless body. The soul exists from conception, for it is an aspect of the total person who exists from conception. That's from Frame's Systematic Theology. Now, in that first phrase there, there is an exception. There's no particular period in time when the body exists without a soul. Um, can you guys remember what that exception is? What's the exception to that? When the body would be soulless, be found soulless. Good, yeah. It's, so it's currently what we call the intermediate state. Okay, if you are to die today before the return of Christ, where does your body go? But where are you? Okay. Spirit lies in heaven. Yeah, so, so your, your body goes in the ground. We've got to take care of your body while you're enjoying the bliss of heaven. And uh, when Jesus returns, okay, there will be a resurrection. And once again, the immaterial will be joined with the material. So that's the only exception to that. It's important to keep that in mind, all right? I uh, also shared with you last week this quote from Heath Lambert. The body is very good and is declared to be so by God himself who makes his home in it. Sin is very bad and it weakens and decays the body. We long for the day mentioned by Paul when we will have glorified bodies not stained by sin and weakness. All right. So let's go back to Genesis together, the opening chapters of your Bible, first few chapters of Genesis. And before we talk about sin entering the world... We want to understand the original state of man. The original state. <clears throat> because you know that God did not create man sinful, but sin entered the world. God did not create the world with sin in it. The world was created, and then later, sin entered the world. So, if we were to just take some time here this morning to consider... However long it was, whether it was 30 minutes or 30 days before Adam fell, what was it like in that original state before sin affected him? Well, Genesis 2 details the creation of man and woman more explicitly than chapter 1. And I say we'll dive in next week, but we're actually going to be diving in today because these two lessons are smushed together here. And let's go ahead and look at that. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through well, no, let's not do one. Let's do four through nine. Genesis 2, four to nine. Who can read that for us? Okay, go ahead. Four through nine. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not <clears throat> sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. 
to nine. <laughs> now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. So, again, we're just getting a, a peek into this time before Adam and Eve sinned. Again, we don't know how long it was, okay? So we don't know how long this lasted, but we know this is the setup. And I mean, it's just hard to imagine. Here is Adam, truly a human being like us, but without any sort of defilement or decay or weakness or propensity to sin or history of sin. That's really hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because we can understand, okay, Adam, he was, pro- he was a man. He was probably, you know, a mature man. We don't know the age. We can picture that. But without the desire to sin, without the history of sin, without the effects of age as we know the effects of age. Anybody here know the effects of age? No. It's just hard to imagine. And then, of course, Eve was created. Okay, and we read through and God took from the side of Adam. He took a rib from Adam. He created woman. And let's look at verses 24 and 25. Someone want to read uh, 24 and 25? Got it. Okay. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. All right. So we see in verse 25 that they were not clothed. God did not give them clothes. They were naked and not ashamed. So in very straightforward terms, the picture that's being painted here is one of innocence. They were in a state of total innocence. And, you know, we hear that term naked. They were naked. And, you know, we instinctively want to blush or turn away or do something to it because it's just like, ee, (laughs) which kind of proves the whole point of the thing, doesn't it? That they were naked and not ashamed. And we associate nakedness with shame because we're on this side of the fall. And so they were naked and not ashamed. They were very good. Everything was very good. Alan Ross, in his commentary, says their nakedness suggests that they were at ease with one another without any fear of exploitation or potential for evil. Here, the nakedness, though literal, also suggests sinlessness. Right? And I think we can understand that, that there was this innocence that existed where they were able to be in that state without any sort of shame or fear. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's where your first blank comes in. These holistic imago Dei, that just means image of God, beings were truly good. Prior to the fall, everything Adam and Eve did was good. They obeyed as they were designed to obey. They existed in perfect innocence. In the original state, Adam and Eve existed in perfect innocence. Again, just a hard existence for us to relate to. They just obeyed as they were designed to obey. All that they had done leading up to chapter 3 in the fall, it was just good. Everything they did was good. And the entrance of sin into the world is a mystery that we will unpack this time. Because we're about finished with this slide, okay? Or with this lesson. Here's another important point. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had no experiential knowledge of good and evil. Their conscience was purely intellectual as opposed to 
experiential. In the original state, the human conscience was purely intellectual as opposed to experiential. Someone want to take a stab at explaining what I mean there? How could the conscience be intellectual but not experiential in that original state? Anybody got a thought on that? Okay, when, um, when you're born into this world and your parents, hopefully, are teaching you good and evil, do you have already, even at a young age, um, an experience with good and evil? Say three years old, two years old. <laughs> okay, what's what's that experience that they have? It's all around us in our environment. So not only that, not only we're self-centered from a very, okay. very young age. So not only outside but inside, right? Not only without but within. We call the terrible twos the terrible twos for a reason, right? <laughs> It's not because everyone around them is making their life terrible. It's because they're ruining everybody else's life. No, no. But we see, especially at certain points throughout, even a very young child's life, certain manifestations of the sin nature that dwells within. Nobody has to teach the child how to be selfish. The parents don't sit the child down and say, okay, I know that, that naturally you want to be humble, but here's how you be prideful. Okay? It's the exact opposite conversation, isn't it? I know that naturally you want to hit your sibling and you want to steal this. Okay, but here's what's good. Okay, so that's an experiential knowledge of good and evil where it's all around you. Um, of course, it's not just within. Children do have the effects of sin all around them, but it's also within. Well, with Adam and Eve, it was just intellectual. So when God talks about good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Did they have any experience with evil? No. None. So it was really just a concept at, for, the, for them at that point. The concept of evil, okay? All they knew was this good, innocent, perfect state. So their conscience was intellectual as opposed to experiential. They didn't have any personal conviction of sin because there was no sin. They just had the information. They had the data about a hypothetical situation. They didn't have the actual situation. And let's look at Genesis 3.22 real quick. So just the next chapter. Here's what happens after the fall. So notice the wording here and how this affects the conscience. How the conscience is different now. We're moving to the other side of sin. Someone want to read verse 22? Who's got that? Okay, go ahead. All right, so something happened here after the fall that impacted their knowledge, their conscience. That's what that word conscience means, by the way. It means with knowledge. Something affected their knowledge in that, I mean, look how God phrases this. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. There's an increase in knowledge, an increase because of experience in how they knew what was good and what was evil. Though innocent... 
Okay, here's another important point. Though innocent, Adam and Eve were not righteous by merit. They depended on the grace of God. They had the ability to sin, of course, and they went on to do so. After the fall, Adam and Eve needed more of God's grace, namely the grace of forgiveness of sin and imputed righteousness. Okay? So one of the things to try to balance, and it's really hard to think through this and word it, and there's, there are differences of approaches with this, but when Adam and Eve were in their state of innocence, is it right to say that they were perfectly righteous? Well, it depends. It depends on what you mean by that. If you're saying they're perfectly righteous because they were earning their righteousness in that state by just doing good and, and putting forth their own righteousness. I, I think I'm going to disagree with that. I think I've got to stop short of saying that. Okay? They weren't righteous by merit. They weren't keeping up works to placate God. Okay? However, they were in a state of total innocence. And... After they sinned, they were dependent on God's grace just as they were before, but they needed more of his grace. They needed forgiveness of sin at that point, and they needed righteousness imputed to them uh, by faith. Okay. Thoughts on any of those things as we finish out this lesson on the original state of Adam and Eve? Good things to chew on here. And these are difficult things. Um, because we don't have a ton of detail. But. So once they took of that fruit and they experienced their own sinfulness, that's how the experience of it, of them actually being a part of it, that's how they became more knowledgeable. Yes, yep. Yep. Their conscience was directly affected, and uh, we're going to see as we get into this next lesson how that then corrupts those who come after them. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's it for this one. Let me pull up the next lesson. We'll go on to that next page in your notes. From Satan to us. Now we get to the bad news. Yeah, go ahead. They must have been really shocked when they... You know, took ate the forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. Gained with the knowledge that they, I mean, they must have really been in shock. Yeah, well, some sort. well, and there's also this uh, promise from God. What did, what did God say would happen if they sinned? <laughs> they would surely die. They would surely die. They didn't die that instant, but, but they did die later. Mm-hmm. Did they understand that? Well, it's hard to know what they understood. Um, And the natural physical death did come later. But what happened instantly spiritually? There was a spiritual death, right? There was something that happened then that separated them from God. There was a chasm that instantly formed there. Where, you know, in in the one moment, they're in a state of perfect innocence. They've only done what is good. They only obey. A few moments later, now we got this issue. Where they disobeyed for the first time. <coughs> sin now has entered the world and death through sin. Romans 5. Well, that changes things. And that's what this lesson is about. From Satan to us, how sin has made its way to our hearts. And the first thing we've got to do is talk about the origin of sin. All right? Review. We don't have to do a review because we just talked about it. Um, But the big idea is that in their original state, man and woman existed as perfect beings in a perfect environment. 
But this is what happened. I just quoted it, Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Well, let's examine that and how that happened. The origin of sin. <clears throat> the Greek word for sin literally means to miss the mark. Perhaps you've heard that before. In Greek, the idea is to miss the mark. It's one of loss. A person attempts to achieve, fails, and then now has no share of the victory. So you can think of a, an archer. It's, it's an archery term in common Greek outside of the Bible to sin. He's shooting at a target, misses. Or if you're bad at darts like I am, you're looking to hit that bullseye, and next thing you know, there's a hole in the wall, right? So you just got to be careful. It's the, the idea there is to miss the mark. A person attempts to achieve, fails, and now has no share of the victory. Okay, now here's... Something really important. Worse than that, Scripture presents man as not having an innate desire to conform to God's holiness at all. So even though the word means to miss the mark, we shouldn't read into that. That, uh, that means people are all born seeking to be on God's good side. That people are born attempting to be holy, and they're just not quite good enough. I don't think that's the message that the Bible presents at all. I think the message is that man, is because of sin, is born with this opposition towards God. That there's a natural opposition, a natural rebellion. Again, going back to, to children, do they naturally do what is good and right and holy? <laughs> no, if they did, parenting would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? It'd be a whole lot easier. Well, no. Our natural state actually is to... Avoid the mark. <coughs> Say, oh, that's the standard? Well, let me see how I can navigate around that. Okay, so sin is to miss the mark. <coughs> Here are some questions for you. Difficult questions. Did God create sin? Hmm, <coughs> you know, there are a couple. He created Satan, but... Well, Satan fell. He created Well, um, there are some interesting passages, you know. Um, let's see. Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's interesting. Uh, Isaiah, you remember? Isaiah, do you remember where that one is? 45. I, don't, I always forget that reference. I don't know why I forget that one. It's like 45.7 or 57.5. or. Oh, wait, it's 45.7. That's what it is. Yep. It says, God, well, I have a New American Standard. Who's got something besides a New American Standard? Okay, Jen, what does yours say? Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay, anybody else got another translation? Okay, Isaiah 45, 7. So the word is calamity. That's what New American Standard has. And Jen, what do you have? Same. Oh, you have NIV? Or do, what what oh, translation? ESV. ESV. Okay, well, 45, Isaiah 45 7. What is your saying? 45 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay, disaster. Mm. Mm. Yeah, nobody's got a King James in here? Eric, I'm grabbing on my King James. Uh, from. Oh, okay. You want a new King or a King James? Whichever one says evil. <laughs> That's where I'm going to get here with all this. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, the word uh, calamity. James. Okay. James says, I, form, uh, I make peace and create evil. Okay. There's a verse in the King James that directly says God creates evil. Okay. Yeah, and then that is the question, too. If, did God create everything? Yes. Is evil a thing? Yes. Did God create evil? Okay. You've got to figure out how to navigate that. Here's another question. Is evil as old as good? Now, this one's a lot easier to address, and so we'll address that one real quick. Good necessarily precedes evil. The mark being missed is God's holy standard. Therefore, since sin is missing the mark, the mark must exist first. Without God's goodness, there can be no definition of evil. Okay? Um, if, if there is no goodness first, then what is evil? If there's no standard in place, what is a transgression against the standard? Right? If good and evil are equally existent, if they've both existed eternally, then what you have are just competing opinions rather than a standard and a transgression. But good and evil, good is a standard, holiness, and evil is a transgression against that standard. Okay? So that's easy to take care of. But now this other, this other business of did God create sin, well, that's a little more difficult. All right. So where did sin come from? Let's uh, go to Ezekiel 28. You got that reference there in your notes. Ezekiel 28. Let's go there and examine the origin of evil. We're actually going before Adam and Eve here. Way, way back. In a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> now this is a bit of a longer passage. Nine verses. I'll read the next one because it's even longer than that. But would someone read this for us? Um, Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Who's willing to read that for us today? What verses? Sorry. 11 to 19. I'll, I'll do it. Okay, now before you read, I, I want to give a little bit of context here. You'll notice in the uh, second verse that Mandy's about to read, verse 12, Ezekiel is instructed to speak or address... Who? Yeah, King of Tyre. All right. So what you're about to read then is a little interesting because you've got Ezekiel as a prophet of God being commissioned to go out and to proclaim this lamentation over the King of Tyre. But there's stuff woven in here that cannot apply to the King of Tyre. You're going to hear stuff in here that's like, whoa, now that goes beyond any man. Um, so... What you have are kind of multiple things at play where the king of Tyre is like a type of Satan. You've got Satan being addressed besides the king of Tyre. Not just, God's not even speaking to the king of Tyre at all at some points. He's speaking directly to Satan. And you have this, of course, idea that the, the principalities of the air, angels and demons, have an effect on what's going on on the earth. And Satan himself has an effect on the nations, doesn't he? Satan is able to affect kings. And so apparently the king of Tyre was being directed in a, a special, a, a, a more impactful way by Satan himself. And so God, at times here, he just speaks directly to Satan. So that's a lot of interesting stuff going on. So Mandy, go ahead and start in verse 11 and read down through 19, please. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, 
full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Oh, man. Hmm. Sardius, no. topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Okay. Well, that is just quite interesting. What's the first hint that you have here that... There's more going on than God speaking to a human king. The signet of perfection, <laughs> okay. wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the first statement. Yes, and then as you keep going, you were in Eden, mm-hmm. the Garden of God. Well, the King of Tyre wasn't in Eden, mm-hmm. right? So you got to try to make sense of that somehow if you're saying that. He's just speaking to a human king. Oh, by the way, whenever you encounter passages, if you're reading out loud and they've got difficult names or whatever in there like this, just read with confidence. No one will know. Okay? Yeah, we don't know. These pronunciations and stuff, we don't know. So I just say it like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I've studied this my whole life. Yeah. All right. What about in verse 14? Um, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll get to this uh, way down the road in this class. I don't know when, but uh, we will have a section on angels. And when it comes to angels, Scripture gives us two categories of angels. There are the cherubim and seraphim, right? And we sing about them, holy, 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 that hymn, uh, cherubim and seraphim. The cherub angels are those who were given a particular role in guarding. So you actually see that at the end of Genesis 3, God places an angel there, a cherub to guard. And then you see it here and some other places where they're told that they have a guardian role. Whereas seraphim, perhaps the most famous place where we see the seraphim is Isaiah 6. Guys remember what's going on in Isaiah 6? What's happening in Isaiah 6? The vision of God he has. Isaiah has this vision, the train of the robe filling the temple. And what, what's going on with the angels? Yeah, seraphim are around him, are screaming, are yelling, holy, 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 yes. holy, So the seraphim seem to have like a proclamation role. And so the way I remember this, I have a lot of these little pneumatic memory devices here that uh, I learned. I picked up in Bible college as I was studying all this. Cherubim protect the chair or the throne of God, okay? Chair, cherubim. Seraphim, they say, they're proclaimers, okay? So take that for what it's worth. But that's what I see there with uh, the cherub. But as it comes to uh, sin, 
how do we get to the origin of sin here? Okay, because that's the question. Did God create sin? Where did sin come from? How did sin get in the world? What indications do we have in this passage? There are two places in this passage that we can look to and say, okay, that tells us something about where sin came from. Uh, verse 15. Okay. Where it says, uh, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created t- till unrighteousness was found in you. All right. So this is the first case of sin as the Bible presents sin to us. I mean, this is as far back as we can go to see sin in the Bible. We know that Satan is that great serpent of old. He's the one who deceived Eve in the garden. So he had to sin before Genesis 3. Here we are. We can't go, we can't find another case before this. And we have the location of unrighteousness in Satan. Okay, you also can see in verse 17, if you drop down and look there, that there was uh, internally an issue. Or 16, rather. You were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And so in these two phrases here, God is indicating to us that the origin of sin is in Satan himself. Okay? He, Satan committed the first sin ever in the entire universe. That sin originated from within. Evil was found in him and it originated internally. Right? Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, says, Sin was found in Satan, yet he was created perfect. That's what this passage says, isn't it? You're perfect in beauty. God is not the blameworthy cause of Satan's sin, yet it was included in his plan. So, in, uh, again, going back to my Bible college days, one of the papers we had to write for uh, the class Anthropology is the, the sin paper. Everyone knew it as the sin paper with what turned out to be my favorite professor, but he was the hardest professor or, or theology prof. And you had to write out the problem of evil. How did evil get into the world? How do we make sense of this? And let me tell you, when you're saying, okay, Scripture's my guide, here we go, this statement up here is about as close as you can get. <laughs> okay? To say more than this or less than this is going to put you in a little bit of a a bind. Even just that first statement, sin was found in Satan, yet he was created perfect. God is not the blameworthy cause of Satan's sin, yet it was included in his plan. So you just have to embrace that. That's what the Bible gives us. Don't exceed what is written. You can have some thoughts of speculation, but don't dare be dogmatic about them. Okay? Just... Recognize this is what Scripture gives us. Um, verse 17, Ezekiel 28, 17, gives us a clue about what was happening within Lucifer, causing him to ultimately rebel. This is interesting. Mandy, you want to pull up that King James Version again that you got there? And it is in, I don't think it's in 17. I think it's earlier than that. Um, hmm. What verse is it? Well, maybe you can just scroll through that passage you just read and see if you can find the word Lucifer there. Okay. What verse is that? Hmm. 
might be the Isaiah 14 passage. I thought it was Ezekiel 28. Well, now it's going to bug me. Um, there's only one place in the Bible that we get the word Lucifer, the term Lucifer. You guys have probably heard that lots of times in your life, right? Satan, his name is Lucifer. Well, it only comes up one time, and it's in the King James Bible only. Maybe New King James. Are you, are you seeing it in that passage at all? I am still scrolling through, but I'm not seeing that right now. It might be. I bet it's Isaiah 14. So we'll, we'll look at it again when we get to Isaiah 14. Um, and it's actually a bad translation. So I don't really like to use the term Lucifer, but here I did. Uh, I, I'm all distracted now. Verse 17. It gives us a clue about what was happening within Satan. Uh, what was happening according to verse 17? What was happening in Satan's heart? Being filled with pride because of his youth. That's it. Being filled with pride. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. So Rex says he doesn't like to look in the mirror. That's good. Well, Satan must have had a mirror, right? And he was looking in, uh, he was doing the old narcissistic thing where he looks into the reflecting pool and says, Ooh, I'm beautiful. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, Paul seems to relate the sin of conceit to the devil's sin. I'll just read this to you. 1 Timothy 3, of course, is where we get the qualifications for elders. And in 1 Timothy 3, 6, it says that the elder should not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So Paul there is linking the idea of being conceited with the devil himself, Satan himself. And so being lifted up in your heart with pride... uh, as the King James translates it there, that's what's going on with Satan as he falls. Okay? I do know that if you want it. It was Isaiah 14 years. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to go to that next, so just yeah, hang on to that. Um, see Fred Dickinson in his book, Angels, Elect, and Evil, my favorite book on angels. I think it does a great job summing stuff up. It says, uh, reflecting upon his God-endowed beauty, he became enthralled with himself and was lifted up with pride. Sin uses God's gifts for selfish ends. He also perverted other angels from God's way. His habitation was defiled by his sin also. So actually from here, yeah, there is quite a bit that Scripture says about what happened to Satan and the other angels. And again, we'll get to all that in the angelology section of this class. But uh, for now, that's enough to know. So any other thoughts or questions on Ezekiel 28 before we look at Isaiah 14? And the fall of Satan. Doing all right? Okay, well, let's head over to Isaiah 14 then. And we'll look at verses 3 to 21. I'll read these. Satan committed the sin of pride when he inwardly decided to seek to be like God. I don't know why the sentence has two periods. I need to fix that. But well, let's uh, look at this. Isaiah 14, verses 3 to 21. Ah, and there it is. It's verse 12. If you have a King James, it's verse 12 that'll say Lucifer. <clears throat> but uh, I'll start reading in verse 3. And again, something to note. Who is this being spoken to according to verse 4? Who's Isaiah supposed to speak to? King of Babylon. So you got the same kind of thing going on here as you do in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel's supposed to speak to the king of Tyre. Isaiah's supposed to speak to the king of Babylon, but you got the same kind of factors at play where Satan is working in their lives and God's kind of 
goes past them here at least at times and speaks directly to Satan. So Isaiah 14, verse 3. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. Do you long for that day? My goodness, that'll be a great day. They break forth into shouts of joy. Verse 8. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth, It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. All right, now here's where it starts to get pretty interesting. Verse 11, your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, You will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities." Okay, there you have an extended poetic judgment against the king of Babylon. But I'm sure you picked up here how there are certain things that kind of went beyond him and touched on Satan, particularly verses 12 to 13. Okay. The star of the morning, it says in verse 12, fell from heaven because he sinned in his heart when he desired to be like the Most High. Seeking to usurp the glory of God was the initial sin. The first sin there was was seeking to be like God. So Satan, in his pride, in his beauty, being just totally amazed with himself, said, I will be like God. That was the initial sin. The opening sin. Satan's desire to be deity 
a creature seeking to take the place of creator, caused him to fall. So those are your blanks there on the sheet. As a creature, he sought to take the place of creator. And the sin of Adam and Eve was the same. If you remember back in Genesis 3, 5, what was the temptation? What was so tempting about eating this fruit? Do you guys remember? Good. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that was tempting. Eve says, ooh, that sounds good. I want to be like the Most High. Well, that's Satan's sin. So here you see it replayed in human bodies. Thinking that we can be like God if we commit certain acts is not only sin, it is the original sin. Okay, So you can't cross that chasm between creator and creature. Tried to really drill that home through all these lessons. There's that infinite chasm there. You will always be a creature. He will always be creator. To say that you will have his glory as being a creator yourself, well, that is uh, not only sin, it's the original sin. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions on Satan before we go back to Genesis 3? Making sense? Now's the time to ask if there's any question. So in this one, it says... His sin originated from God? Oh, from within. From within. From within. That's what Ezekiel tells us, doesn't it? Is unrighteousness was found in you. So yeah, from within. I, I don't think I had that sentence spelled out on the slide, so good clarification. His sin originated from within. Okay? All right, well, let's go back to Genesis 3, and we'll finish there today. Genesis chapter 3. The next place we see Satan, the next place we see sin, is in the garden. The next sin in the biblical account was committed in the garden. Hey, would someone go ahead and read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 for us? Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Thanks. The serpent was more crafty than um, any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from your eye. Oh. So you see, especially by that last verse there, innocence was lost through sin. Okay? No longer are they unashamed, but now they're ashamed. And so they made for themselves clothes. Here's another important distinction to make note of. Satan's temptation came from within. 
as he willfully rebelled, following his own pride. Now, after Satan's sin, from that moment on, through all of history, the devil is the tempter of man, as seen here. Okay, So Satan himself becomes the tempter. After he fell from within, he becomes the tempter of man, and even the tempter of other angels. In their original state, Adam and Eve had wills that were not enslaved to sin. They were free to choose. Again, going back to the concept of uh, children, we see naturally children have a propensity to sin. They're corrupted. We're all corrupted because of sin. In the original state, not Adam and Eve. They were free to choose. Using her free cognitive ability and reason... Eve decided to disobey God. Adam witnessed, and he joined in. Something I always like to point out is in verse 6, she didn't take of the fruit and say, hey, this is really good, and go find her husband who was off doing something else, and that's you know why all this happened was because they just got separated for a while or whatever. No, he was right there with her. She gave it to her husband who was with her. So there they were listening to the tempter, and together they, they disobeyed. They committed sin. Okay? Wayne Grudem says that Adam and Eve's sin gave wrong answers to these questions. There's, these are three little blanks here. What is true? What is right? And who am I? I thought that was pretty insightful. What is true? What is right? And who am I? Let's answer these. uh, Or just explain how their sin gave wrong answers to that. I think the first one is probably the easiest. How did their sin give a wrong answer to what is true? What were they effectively saying was true when they partook of the fruit? They were effectively saying what? Maybe like God. Okay. That they would somehow be as wise as God and cross that infinite chasm and be like God. Yeah, that was the, the promise, right? You'll be like God. Here, take it. And in a sense, you know, we read from the end of Genesis 3, verse 22, man has become like one of us, it says in verse 22. So there was an aspect in which his knowledge increased, okay? The conscience was affected. But in being, to be like the Most High, to have a throne in the heavens as Satan said he would do, that wasn't ever going to happen, right? What else were they effectively saying was true whenever they rebelled against God? What were they claiming about their own reason as opposed to submitting to God's direction? Yeah, they were saying we know better. (laughs) I like teenagers, yes. Yeah, perhaps they were teenagers. We don't know their ages, right? Uh, Yeah. Um, It was certainly a we know better. We know that God said this, but remember how Satan was crafting these questions? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Has God said, verse 1, has God said calling into question what they clearly heard God say. 
right? Huh, well, you know, maybe if you look at it this way, the way that he said it, if you, if you look at it this way, maybe I could, maybe it could mean this, and I could do this, or maybe, well, I mean, who knows? Who knows all those things that were going through their minds? But at the end of the day, they're basically saying, you know, I can be my own compass. I don't need God to be my director. I can be my own compass. Is that, is that still sin today? Yes. Oh, okay. <clears throat> they also gave the wrong answer to what is right. You want to, someone try to explain that one a little bit? I think it's interesting to note, too, how her response, um, you shall not eat from it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die, kind of like expanded on on God's actual command. She misquoted God. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, just this morning, Steve was asking me about uh, Moses' sin that kept him from the promised land. You remember what he did? Yeah, well, didn't God tell him in Exodus to make water come from a rock? You strike the rock? So what was so wrong about that? Yeah, that's right. The second time he was told to speak. The first time he was told, strike the rock. second time he was told, speak to the rock. And he says, oh, I know better. And it seems so trivial to us, right? Like, oh, my goodness. That's pretty harsh, God. I mean, this is something he's done before. And, you know, no one has perfect memories, God. Why, what's the deal? No, as we say to our kids all the time, not remembering what mom and dad tell you, that's a problem. That's a problem. We can't just say, oh, that's no big deal. That's a problem. How often does God tell his people, remember, remember, remember? Okay. So um, what is right? What, well, how are they answering that wrong? When they sinned in the garden, what were they saying was right? Just be real elementary about it. Don't try to get a big sort of fancy answer. Yeah, okay, good. They were saying, you know, God said this, serpent says that. Serpent's right. Whoops. Whoops. And effectively saying, disobedience is right. Disobedience is good. Does that still happen today? Perhaps in less obvious ways. I mean, this seems so obvious to us. Like, how? How dumb could they be? This is so clear. And a hundred years from now, people might read history books of things that we're doing today and look back and say, well, how dumb they were, how clear it was. Because we still do that, right? We look back at people in history and say, how could they have thought that? How could they have done that? How could they have done that Christian breakdance thing? That was so dumb, right? <laughs> how did they not know? Okay. Well, um, we have to be shrewd, as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. It always has astonished me too that it's not like he, it doesn't make it sound like the serpent was like just going at her for hours yeah. and like waterboarding her yeah. into getting, like it didn't really seem like he had to do that much oxygen. Yeah, that's right. Like, I mean, yeah. or you could just, mm-hmm. and then left it to bed. Like it, it's astonishing. It doesn't cease to amaze me how. Easily, we just go, oh, you're right. Okay, mm-hmm. just do that. It's not like it's yeah. hours and hours and days and Yes. Yeah, what is, uh, I mean, you know that phrase, you win more, or you get more flies with honey than vinegar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a winsome personality is going to deceive people quicker than a tyrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's certainly going on here. And that's why 
you got to have discernment. You got to look past whatever facade there is. I'm sure as a police officer, you had all kinds of experience with that. People who could put on a good front, but they were guilty, <laughs> right? And how about who am I? How how was the sin giving a wrong answer to who am I? What were they effectively saying? I'm in charge. Say that again. I'm in charge. Oh, good. I can make my own rules. Yeah, following Satan in his pride. Or if they, you know, but what goes on here at the end when God confronts them? At first, uh, you know, there's like, well, Adam gets confronted. Well, it was Eve. And Eve gets confronted. Well, it was a serpent, right? So what she's basically saying is, well, I put myself under the submission of, of my authoritative head, the serpent. You can't blame me for that. Well, yes, he can. Yeah. She was saying that Satan was her authority. Very frightening. Yeah. So the correct answer to who am I is we are God's. Okay. We are the sheep of his pasture. We can't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We, we hang on to God's words. And so to go off and follow Satan is to give a wrong answer to who am I because you're neglecting your authority and saying that you belong to Satan himself. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? we got just about a minute left here. just thought it was interesting. You said in their state before this, the fall, they, were the, they had true free will. And free will's, you know, a big deal in our country and in this state right now. You know, free agency or whatever. But they were the only two that actually had. <laughs> How far did they get them? <laughs> yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah, everyone's enslaved to sin whether or not they want to admit that at this point. Yep. Yep. Turns out when you have uh, freedom there, it just doesn't go the way you think it might go. So, yes, indeed. Well, next week, we will talk about this uh, headship aspect to all of this. I just mentioned how when God confronted them, he came to confront Adam, didn't he? That's interesting. He didn't start with the serpent. He didn't start with Eve. He started with Adam. We'll talk about that and tie that in with Romans and how sin gets from Satan to Adam to us. Okay? Very good. Well, I'll pray again, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank you for your word and for how you teach us, guide us, direct us in our thinking. Help us to embrace your word and to give proper answers to who we are and to what is right and to what is true. Teach us today. Knit our hearts together more and more in gospel love and help us to be good students of the word that we would honor you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.